Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the DNA Papers podcast series in which we revisit the seminal papers that taught us about the structure and function of the DNA molecule. In our last two episodes, we discussed the work that offered evidence for the chemical identity of the molecule, DNA, that affected the transformation of types in bacteria. As mentioned in these episodes, although many of the scientists were skeptical towards the initial 1944 evidence that hereditary information was carried on DNA, there were others who were persuaded by the evidence. One of the scientists who was so inspired by this 1944 work to emerge from Oswald Avery's lab at Rockefeller University was Irvin Shargaff, Austro-American biochemist from the nearby Columbia University. He was so inspired, in fact, that he immediately turned all his energy towards working on this new molecule. As records show, until that time, until 1944, nucleic acids were barely mentioned in his work. There is a passing mention in two of his 75-odd publications from the beginning of his career until that time. But by 1947, a scant three years later, he had presented his first ideas and vision at the Cold Spring Harbor Symposium for Quantitative Biology in a talk titled on the nucleoproteins and nucleic acids of microorganisms. That will be the first paper being discussed today in episode nine of the DNA papers. Over the next several decades, he went on to publish more than 150 papers on the topic of DNA and nucleoproteins. Many of his papers, especially the ones immediately following the Quantitative Biology Symposium, were determining the composition of the nitrogenous bases, the purines and pyrimidines, better known to most of us as A, T, G, and C, those components of DNA from different sources, mostly bacteria. And he showed that the relative amounts of these compounds were different for different species and that they were not, as previously believed, present in equal amounts in any given cell. So the two other papers featured in today's episode represent the distillation of some of these findings. Joining us today to explain and contextualize Shargaff's contributions to the history of DNA are the following scholars, each of whom bring their unique and valuable perspectives to the story. First up is Panina Abiram, whom I'm delighted to welcome back for among her many contributions to the history of molecular biology is a 1980 paper focusing specifically on what she characterized as Shargaff's acculturated journey toward understanding DNA. I'm really looking forward to her putting both Shargaff's paper and her own in historical context. Welcome back to the series, Panina. Thank you very much. In contrast to his contributions to the biographical elements of the last few episodes in which he participated, our next guest Molecular biologist turned historian Kirsten Hall was invited this time for his work on the history of the techniques behind Shargaff's success, specifically paper chromatography, for which there is a connection to Leeds, which is where Kirsten himself hails from. 
he's also a big champion i think of trying to publicize shargaf's work and i'd really like to thank you kirsten and welcome back so glad you could be here thank you neeraja nice to be back last but hardly the least i'd like to welcome back hans jorg brandberger to the dna papers podcast series the author of numerous books including the brand new split and splice a phenomenology of experimentation hans jorg is here to offer his wide ranging historical and philosophical perspectives on the place of shargaf's experiments in the history of the dna molecule congratulations on the new book and thank you for returning to the series okay without further ado let us begin my first question as usual is what these papers are about could each of you please give a two sentence summary of one of the papers panina why don't you start well like you said before in your introduction It's a 1947 paper in uh, the Cold Spring Harbor Symposium. It is about a lot of ideas and about a vision. I did not read this paper in a very long time, and in view of this podcast, I reread it twice. And I'm astonished how much of a vision, which is later somewhat expanded, but not not very different in Chargaff's reference that you also gave us in 1979. So we can see that he's pretty steady in this between 47 and 79, and this is amazing. He covers, in my opinion, in this paper, all the possible angles. that suggests why it makes sense to focus on dna and where to look how to do that but also the paper has some contradictions and they may reflect who chargaf was i should also say that the paper even though this paper is before any results were obtained with the exception of one paper in april 47 it does contain many if not most of his viewpoints on science and culture there are signs of his specific style it's full of sarcasm irony these are not tropes that are common in science but they are very common to him because science for him was a second best vocation and we should not forget that and i will come back to this later thank you The next paper is the separation and quantitative estimation of purines and pyrimidine in minute amounts published in the Journal of Biochemistry the following year that is in 1948 Hans Jorg I think I can be rather short on this paper it is really a methods paper and it is based on the earlier statement of the 1947 paper that appropriate methods need to be developed in order to be able to quantitatively measure the different bases of deoxynucleic acid deoxyribose nucleic acid and he was from the very beginning pretty aware that this was practically the keystone to his further work and so he concentrated on 
paper chromatography on the one hand, maybe we will hear about that later, a method that had been only recently introduced in order to separate other biological molecules and he took it over for his own purposes. And the second point uh, that sometimes is forgotten but also should not be forgotten is UV spectroscopy, ultraviolet spectroscopy. Uh, and he took advantage of an instrument that he could buy after the war from Beckman Corporation. That was the most developed spectrometer, UV spectrometer at the time. And it helped him to quantify the amounts of the different bases that he before had separated on his paper chromatography system. So that these two methods work together and we cannot deal with one without dealing also with the other. Because the point is that analytical chemical methods would not help him very much in this issue because the amounts of bases that he could separate on his paper sheets was much too low. And so the only possibility to measure that was via extinction coefficients and absorption spectra that the spectrometer yielded to him. And fortunately, the bases have somewhat different absorption maxima, and so he could distinguish between them. They are all between 260 and 280 nanometers. So the paper is a pure method paper, and it is done together with a guy whose name is Ernst Fischer, who came from Switzerland as a postdoc and was instrumental in working out the method. So he later disappeared from academia again and became a director of the pharmaceutical division of Siba Geigi in Basel. So he went to industry afterward. This is where the money is. Yes, exactly. Thank you, Hans-Jörg and Panina, for those insights. Our third paper in the series is titled Chemical Specificity of Nucleic Acids and the Mechanism of Their Enzymatic Degradation, which appeared in a journal called Experientia in 1950. Kirsten, could you please offer the summary for this paper? Thanks, Neeraja. So when I read this paper, I heard the sound of hammering. And that was the sound of the final nail being hammered into the coffin of the idea that DNA was just a monotonous, boring tetranucleotide, which we've heard all about in a, a previous issue in the series. It's only about 10 pages, is this paper. It's the summary of about two years worth of work. And he packs a lot into those 10 pages. But what's interesting is he's very restrained. You know, he says, look, I'm not going to indulge in grand speculative talk about how DNA copies itself, about templates and reduplication. Basically, he's just going to focus on characterizing the chemical constituents of nucleic acids. Because he says, look, in order to determine what these things are, it's got to be based on the nature of their constituents. And that comes as no surprise because he's a chemist by training. So he's coming at this with a very chemical perspective. But as I say, he covers so much because he goes, he analyzes the, the proportions of the four bases, ACGT, in 
thymus and spleen tissue from arcs in human sperm cells, and also in two microbial organisms, yeast and avian tubercle bacterium. And he comes to a stunning conclusion because he shows that the proportions of A, C, G, and T vary between species. So he says the desoxypentose nucleic acids extracted from different species appear to be different substances of a composition constant for different organisms of the same species. And here's the important bit, and that they are characteristic of the species. And he goes on to say these results serve to disprove the tetranucleotide hypothesis, which he also qualifies and says, and you know what? It should never have been called a theory in the first place because we have to be quite sober, as I think came out in the previous episode, just about how entrenched and established that was as an idea. But he also points out as well, and we'll probably, we'll, we can expand on this later on, he makes this observation that the ratios of adenine to thymine and guanine to cytosine, as he says, we're not far from one. And he calls that observation noteworthy. And I'm sure we'll be able to expand on why that's significant a bit later on. But I think the climax of the paper is that he concludes that, as he says, as far as chemical possibilities go, they, meaning nucleic acids, could very well serve as one of the agents or possibly as the agent concerned with transmission of inherited properties. But for me, what really grabs me about the paper is one single line and he says the basis of the procedure is the partition chromatography on filter paper, which Hans Jörg's given a wonderful explanation of. But for me, it's that line, because that line points to a fascinating and rich backstory behind this paper, which I'm sure I can elaborate on shortly. So that's it in a nutshell. Thank you, Kirsten. And thank you, everybody, for those summaries. So I'd like to move on then to ask you for some history and context for the papers. Who was Shargaf? What was his background? How did he come to work on the nucleic acids and nucleoproteins more generally? We've touched on almost all these questions briefly in the introduction as well as in earlier answers, but I'd like for us to go into some detail because Shargaf was a rather fascinating character and Panina just began to hint at what she called science being his second choice career. So, Panina, I'd like to ask you to go first on who was Shargaf and give some background for these papers. From the narrow scientific viewpoint, he was hired at Columbia University in 1935 to help two physicians from CNP, College of Physicians and Surgeons, a famous institution in New York City, affiliated with Columbia. So, he was hired to help two physicians chemically characterize the various factors that play a role in blood coagulation. And he did that between 35 and 45, roughly, except that during World War II, he got various contracts after the U.S. entered the war in 41, There were a lot of uh, army contracts for research on tropical and other diseases that bothered the American troops in the Pacific. And it was in that framework, for example, that he studied rickettsia and RNA and DNA in organisms that were pathogenic from the viewpoint of the American army. He was doing very well. He had a gift for getting grants from the army, even though 
I might say that there was more money than people knew what to do with it, but he was all the time very busy and established already an infrastructure in which a high turnover of graduate students, regular undergraduate and postdocs came through his lab. And this is very important because, as Kirsten and Hans Jörg said, this microanalytical chemistry is very labor-intensive. And to do that work, Chargaff didn't do it alone. He had an, an army of assistants and associates. And this is important that he was in an institution that could provide for such human resources infrastructure. Now, in 1944, of course, New York in particular was maybe not entirely shattered, but shaken by Avery's paper. Chargaff was in a relatively unique position to be able to evaluate the paper and understand that the objections raised against the paper, even when raised by chemists like Alfred Mersky, are wrong. That the, Avery, that the paper was very good and very correct, and it is a challenge. At the same time, like most people at the time, Chargaff has difficulty, even though he switches his entire research program into investigating the sources of diversity in DNA to get rid of the nucleoproteins that Avery showed very clearly that uh, genetic change doesn't need them. So he continues to spend, maybe a bit waste, some research effort on nucleoproteins, even though the bulk of the effort went into looking what is a nucleic acid could be, if it is species-specific, if it is tissue-specific, and how on earth its chemistry might account for the biological functions that Avery assigned to it. And this is a biological function that was genetic in nature, moving from virulent to non-virulent or vice versa. So it's one point to know that Chargaff was actually very well situated to pursue the implications of Avery from a technical and chemical and human resources viewpoint. Columbia University is an Ivy League place. A lot of people, a lot of ambitious students were there. He had no problem to recruit endless human power, including women at the time, which is a big deal. You can see that one of the first women in 1946 is someone called Charlotte Green. So he would take anybody who was available there. Another point is that Columbia was a center of innovation at the time. A lot of very big chemists and biochemists worked there at the time even great biologists, and he mentions these names in the 1979 paper. And he was at the center of a network where all the information that he needed could easily reach him. And this is in contrast to his role in Hotchkiss, who tried to do something similar, but at that time Rockefeller University did not exist. It was only Rockefeller a medical research institute, there were no endless students flowing. 
and Hotchkiss fell behind for no other reason that he didn't have the huge resources that Chargaff commanded. Now, you can say he was very advantageously positioned to do the work for which we appreciate him today, but he also brought, like most people, not only advantages, but also disadvantages. And those disadvantages are very obvious in the 47 paper, for which I'm grateful to Lirja for stimulating me to read again, because I'm not sure that I paid attention to these items when I looked at it as part of all the output at the time. So what we see there in advantages and disadvantages that Chargaffs brings to the plate. If we look at the first line of the 47 paper, he said that he is a cytochemist, and later on he changed the name, he introduced himself as a cell chemist. He very rarely said that he is a biochemist, even though biochemistry is a wider umbrella term. And the reason that he says that is that he came from a tradition and that chemistry is the best way to get good results. And biology is some kind of messy stuff. And in all of biology, the worst that exists is genetics. Why? Because the unit of analysis, the gene, is imaginary. Nobody held it. Nobody saw it. It's someone that in chemistry, you isolate what you have, you characterize it, and you know where you are. And it is not entirely obvious to me, and I welcome your suggestions, why he's not only he's skeptical of biology and condescending toward biology in general, but he's positively hostile, I would say bordering on hatred toward genetics. And there are several possibilities, but there is relatively little evidence. One possibility is, of course, the abuses of genetics in World War II. The genetics was implicated in very negative things. So I can see that part, but I, I believe it's not enough to, to explain his hostility. And this is entirely possible that he knew either in the family or among his friends a genetically defective individuals that suffered greatly from societal attitude and from the fact that genetic diseases are among the worst that exist. There is no cure and something must have shattered him about genetics. So he has a very negative attitude. Of course, this is uh, this has terrible ramifications because all that he can do chemically has value only for one discipline, and that discipline is genetics, but he doesn't want to go there. And this is part of the tragedy. Kirsten or Hans-Jörg, do you have anything to add in response to Panina? So I cannot add very much to that. So I, I think Nina has put it very well, and I'm not in a position to go into details with this because I never did really a proper study of, of Chargaff's work. But one thing that was striking me was that when he came to Berlin in the 1930s and spent some time there, I, I think altogether two years, I do not know, two and a half, 
before then going on to Paris. He worked at Berlin University and not at one of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes at that time were flourishing in Dahlem, in Berlin Dahlem. But he frequently was over there, which is also documented and had contacts with all these people and was introduced in, I mean, he had a chemical education, but then he was working on microbes already also in in Berlin of bacteriology. Yeah? And actually there he he basically learned to handle microorganisms, something then he could profitably develop further when he was in the United States. But I think there is a connection to biology there that possibly cannot be completely reduced uh, to the question of genetics. That's just what I wanted to say. Like Hans-Jörg said, I can't add much to what Panina said, but I just wanted to chip in. There's a little quotation that I think gives you a wonderful insight into Shargaff's personality and his caustic wit. So there, there are a lot of ironies about Erwin Shargaff, as I hope will become apparent, but one of them is that despite having spent most of his scientific career in the US at Columbia, when he first considered, in his memoirs, he writes that when the prospect of moving to the US as a young man first presented itself, he said he felt, and I quote, I felt afraid of going to a country that was younger than most of Vienna's toilets, which I think is just 100% pure Shargaff. You can only imagine what Shargaff would have done, in the, what he would have been like in the age of social media. I think Twitter and other platforms would have been going into meltdown with him. He'd have been there furiously tweeting away. As regards the influence of Avery, the sort of epiphany that Shargaff had as a result of Avery's demonstration that you know, nucleic acids could confer the property of virulence in pneumococcus, many years later, he wrote this wonderful line. He said, he's talking about this kind of Damascene moment he had when he first learned of Avery's work. And he said, I saw before me in dark contours the beginning of a grammar of biology. Avery gave us the first text of a new language, or rather he showed us where to look for it. And I resolved to search for this text. And of course, he said, it was clear to me what had to be done, but not how to do it. And this, you know, this brings us to the huge technical obstacle that he had in developing this method of analysis, which um, hopefully I can elaborate on later. They're just saying now that's interesting, Panina, what you said about his hatred of genetics. But, I, you know, I don't think it was confined just to genetics. I think when you, when you start to read him later on, Shargaff moving into the 60s and the 70s, he's just, he becomes like a stereotype old man ranting and these sort of spittle-fleck bilious rants about the state of the world and the state of science. And he thinks that science has become vulgarized and populist and it's all just about basically making better brands of soap there is a wonderful irony to that which again hopefully i'll come back to later but i think he was a romantic and like all romantics he ran that risk of turning into a cynic because his romantic expectations were disappointed by what he felt science had become very utilitarian and, and driven towards very practical practical goals he said it's given rise to a popularization, a vulgarization of science. He's referring to media coverage of science here. He said its achievements have begun to take on the form of a spectator sport and young scientists start like racehorses. By the time he was getting on, he was very much becoming like a, a prophet crying in the wilderness.
Right. Jeremiah. Well, he has the general Central European chemist disdain of biology as a less exact science. There is no question about it. But on the other hand, he thinks that life is mysterious and should remain so. So he has great respect for life in the Romantic tradition and cannot contemplate a strict reductionism to some molecules. Uh, yeah, there's a bit where he says that. He says life is what's lost in the test tube. So it is true that so this is wider backdrop. But with regard to genetics, if you look at the 47 paper, 1947, on the last page, I'm quoting now, one may object that the consideration submitted above would reduce the genes. This is the essence of another science, okay? Or what corresponds to them in bacteria. At that time, they grace to the work of Lederberg and others. They knew already that bacteria have genes. To know more than a kink in a nucleoprotein that could hardly be expected to be maintained through innumerable generations. So he questions that genes are not only secondary to nucleoproteins, but they can even be reproduced across generations. This is the whole raison d'etre of genetics that he has problems with. And he doesn't say why, you know, other than what I already said, that it's formal, it's not concrete. And I also suspect, but I cannot zoom precisely on some very bad people's geneticists that he considered to be bad people. And either at Columbia, and I don't know exactly who could fit that, because that I considered as somebody good. Dobzhansky was European, so for him every European was good. I cannot exactly see who is his nemesis. There must be a geneticist that no European, Luria Delbruck, are fine with him. These are cultivated European whom he admires and thinks he's one of them. Must have been, I suppose, some American anyway. Genetics is an American science par excellence. Some Americans that embodies the worst in American culture and the worst in genetics. And I can't, I know, of course, who are the American geneticists who won Nobel Prizes, but I don't know who is the one that so instilled in Chargaff such negativity towards the science of genetics. I'm sure had something to say. Yeah, if you look at this last page of the paper that you just mentioned, and so he mentions the Möbius strip, but this is an absolutely, it's actually a proposal how DNA could multiply and nothing else. So, because I do not know whether you ever had a Möbius strip in your hand, try to cut it if you go along the whole stripe, yeah? And the result of it, you cut them in two parts, but they hang together. And you could do that indefinitely and expand the chain. So it's a kind of flash of genius that he has there. Right. But you see, he does everything to take genetics of the only things that it has to offer, which is that reproduction or replication deserves spatial attention. Nina, this is about replication. It is a form of replication. Yes, but he attributes it to geometry and topology. He cannot say the word genetics. 
Yeah, but it's his image, huh? Yes, I see. I see what you say. And if you look a page earlier, he thinks that look, this is page thirty-two, first paragraph. Perhaps the most plausible hypothesis would appear to be one which postulates that biological determination. Look, a chemist is not supposed to talk about biological determination. Is mediated through a geometrically unique combination between a specific nucleic acid and a specific protein. So he has the idea that the geometry of these components of chromosomes and genes might say something about duplication, replication, reproduction. This is exactly what turned out to be the case, only in a slightly different way. Right. So it is here astonishing how very close his vision comes to what he should have pursued, but he didn't. We have a situation that he lays here in 47 a whole program. Had he pursued it, he might have solved the issue. How does DNA do its job? Can I just come in on that, Panina? Because that's a really interesting point you've raised there about him, his interest in geometry. Because you see, that it makes me think of so William Astbury, who we talked about in an earlier episode, who with Florence Bell had done the, the first X-ray studies of the DNA structure. And there's a correspondence between Astbury and Shargaff at the time that Shargaff was doing his analysis and showing that the amounts of the four bases varied between species. And there's a letter that Asprey wrote to Shargaff, very excited by Shargaff's finding. And Asprey says, Asprey's wondering whether the difference in the bases, the variation, might be detectable at the level of 3D structure in DNA. So he's thinking, because Asprey's definition of molecular biology was always rooted in, in 3D geometry. So I think that Asprey was thinking, maybe the way that DNA represents biological traits is through some sort of variation, elaborate and sophisticated variation in its 3D structure that's caused by these variations in the bases that Shargaff's found. So, sorry, I just wanted to come in. Just, that's just a little footnote, really, just to give a bit of context on that. But this is actually very relevant because he's not following Asbury's clue. You see, Asbury has, as you know now, it, it was a possibility. He's not, he's corresponding with Chargaff. I mean, I don't know if you people know, I had to catalog Chargaff's papers. This is how my, I got to know him, not him as a person. I got to know the archive first, and then I want to meet him to give him my reports to APS, what I found in the archive. And he was very amused, and he said uh, I might know more about his life than he knows, but that's always the case because I was asking about things in the 20s. He didn't always remember anymore, but anyway, that's the point. He was in touch with all the structurists that we know, not only Asbury, and he knew that X-ray diffraction of complex macromolecules like proteins and DNA later was in trouble. You couldn't do it. You couldn't solve the phase. This was another biology <laughs> mess that you can get into. 
Also, chemists were laughing at X-ray crystallography, and he felt, you know, why to put a healthy head in a sick bed? This is why I think the tragic elements in this story is like somebody is passing next to a gold mine and just doesn't bother to open an open door, like in a Kafka story. It is amazing. I'd like to turn our attention a little bit going back actually to back again to some other discrepancy which is Chargaff most certainly history bears out that Avery was a turning point for him in terms of changing his interests from other subjects to nuclear proteins for pretty much the rest of his career but in those early papers he isn't quite as gung-ho about Avery's work and evidence as he would later have you believe. So in 1948, for example, in a paper that he's, he's written with Fisher, he actually says, he actually hedges his bets a little. He says the isolation capable of inducing transformation was followed by several publications. He says certain properties of the biological active substances appear to bear out their recognition as highly polymerized specific desoxypentose nucleic acids, but he adds, others would seem to speak against it. And he also chips in with the same kind of objections that people had to McCarty's work with the DNAs, that is, Enzyme preparation was not entirely free of proteolytic enzymes and may have contained other as yet unrecognized enzymes. So there is some bit of influence from Mirsky as well, right? Who was very opposed to Avery and McCarty's work. And this was talked about considerably in our last episode. But I'm curious about what you think as readers but what the turning point? I mean, it's fine to have doubts, I think, and fine to express them. I'm curious about two things. What was the turning point and why did he so thoroughly ignore that aspect of his doubts in his later accounts? Does any of you want to comment on that? Well, about ignoring in later accounts, scientists are notorious for trying to show that they were right in retrospect. <laughs> And they don't realize how ridiculous this is. But, and when you show them the evidence, they start to scratch. And because they don't have a vision that people can be wrong, and later on they change their mind, which is what happens all the time. They want to be right by extrapolating from the present. This is why the Whiggish view is so strong. Once you know what is accepted as the correct answer, it's very difficult for you to back and unless you are a professional historian, defend a wrong view. Now, another dimension that I want to draw your attention to about that might explain Chargaff's hesitation is that both Mersky and Avery had a much higher professional status than Chargaff at the time. These were people that were heads of department at Rockefeller. This was the run Rockefeller almost like a German place that the professor is omnipotent and they could do everything. While uh, Avery was a humble man, Mirsky was not and had all kinds of negative traits. And uh, I think he was also vindictive. So to come directly against Mirsky was, you don't want to do that because tomorrow he can say something totally negative about you. So it's very difficult. 
Chargaff at the time was still low in the professional ladder. He did not become full professor until 52. In 47, uh, you know, he was 12 years at Columbia. At that time, you could be many years, and there was no habit to kick people out if they produce uh, results, but he didn't have uh, professional success on a, an obvious level. So he had to be cautious, in a way. The other thing is, all his work before, like the work of most biochemists, tuberculin and those other, uh, and coagulation factors, these are proteins. To even if Avery told you that one trait is done by DNA alone, you can't throw away all the interwar kingdom of proteins that they did everything. They do digestion and they do muscle and they do everything and maybe a little bit healthy reproduction. Proteins were everything and all his life before was, were proteins. So to say that they are suddenly irrelevant would have been also against his cultural tendency to look at the past as better than the present. Ultimately, though, it could be said, despite his hesitation, actions spoke much louder than words, and actions certainly showed that he overwhelmingly turned to nucleic acid. So yes, broadly speaking, I think Avery's paper did have a very palpable influence. Kirsten and Hans-Jörg, would you like to add something to that? So we have to keep in mind that in terms of methods and procedures, Chagav was a very conscious man. He knew exactly what his methods could do and what they could not do. If you look into the 1950 paper, you will see him making a very clear-cut distinction between the possibility of measuring the quantity of the four different bases and determining the sequence of these bases. And it was very clear to him that with his kind of constellation of methods, he never could approach the second point, only the first one. And that's also why he concentrated on the difference, the species difference. And this that's actually the reason for it. It's not because he somehow in a vision or so anticipated what would happen later. No, it, it's just what, what he could do with that instrument. And there is a very, very interesting quote at the beginning of his 1950 paper. I will, will read it to you. We must realize that minute changes in nucleic acids, for instance, the disappearance of one guanine molecule out of a hundred could produce far-reaching changes in the geometry, and now it comes, the conjugated nucleoprotein, because that's what he had to deal with, not DNA alone, not protein alone, but nucleoprotein. And in order to get at nucleic acid, he had first to separate these two classes. And it was a very tedious work at that time. So you must keep in your mind that the very easy phenol extraction procedure was only developed in the middle of the 1950s. That made afterwards a separation of nucleic acids and proteins very easy. And he continues to say, and it is not impossible that rearrangements of this type are among the causes of the occurrence of mutations. 
you see, so he does want to speculate on genetics. He, but he was very clear, and he also says that in that paper, I cannot solve this question with my current methods. I think that is really important to recognize what you can do with what you have in hand. And I'd like to turn the conversation, if I may, just to what is the importance of these papers in the history of understanding the DNA molecule? Kirsten, would you like to go first and then the others chip in? I think I alluded to this when I opened by saying that when I read that paper, I hear the, the sound of the final nail being hammered into the coffin of the tetranucleotide idea, because what Shargaff shows is that no, DNA isn't this simple, boring repeat of the same four nucleotides. Those nucleotides vary between species. That basically offers us the first hint at how genetic information is carried. Um, for me, what fascinates me is the backstory to that, that discovery. And Hansjörg gave a wonderful explanation of the technical paper, of the method that Shargaff used to separate the four nucleotides. But what these papers show is just the extent to which a scientific paper is, is a retrospective construct. Because as I say, there is this whole rich backstory to Shargaff's paper. By doing this, Shargaff has, as I say, offered the first hint at how DNA carries hereditary information. And yet the method, the actual technical method that he used to do that, this method of partition chromatography using filter paper, had its origins in a field so far removed from answering fundamental, profound questions about biology. To do it, we have to go 3,000 miles away from Columbia and come over this side of the Atlantic to Headingley, Leeds. Now, the name may not mean much to some of our listeners. If any of our listeners are cricket fans, then the name of Headingley will mean something because it's renowned internationally as being a home of test cricket. On a local level, Headingley is more famous or perhaps infamous would be more accurate for being a longstanding traditional student fancy dress pub crawl. What both those cricket fans and those fancy dress clad revelers will have in common is that both of them will have passed on Headingley Lane, an old stone gatepost and the ruin of a former stable. And today that gatepost has a, a blue plaque that was put there by the Leeds Philosophical and Literary Society to celebrate their bicentenary in 2019. And that blue plaque commemorates what happened in the ruin of that former stable. Because that stable used to, it was converted from being a stable into an industrial research laboratory for an organisation called WIRA, the Wool Industries Research Association. If it's Leeds, it always comes back to wool. We've heard about the importance of wool and DNA with the Asprey story earlier in the, the series. But basically, working in that former stable as it was billowing with chloroform fumes were two scientists, Archer Martin and Richard Singh. They'd actually come here from Cambridge. Now, Richard Singh's PhD project was to find a new way of analysing and separating the amino acids in wool proteins. And the way he was doing that was using two solvents. And he was doing it by hand, which was tedious. So he was introduced to Archer Martin, who had developed a machine for separating vitamin E based on countercurrent flow, making two solvents flow past each other. And so this was thought to be the perfect solution that Singh needed to separate the amino acids in wool. But the best place to do that wasn't down in Cambridge. It was up here in Leeds. It was the centre of the wool industry. Basically, Martin loaded his great big machine up onto his car and drove at 20 miles an hour, the whole 170 miles up from Cambridge to Leeds. And then the two of them sat in this stable with Archer Martin's great big contraption clinking away. 
billowing with chloroform fumes. You'd have to sit there for four hours at a time. When one of them came to relieve the other one, he'd inevitably find himself being sworn at by the other half of the duo who would by now be intoxicated with chloroform fumes. And so, you know, delivering a stream of expletives. So they were no doubt relieved when they realized this whole process of separation could be simplified. You didn't need Martin's great big contraption because you didn't actually have to have these two solvents flowing past each other. You could keep one of them stationary. So you could hold one solvent stationary. So the first time they did that, they used silica gel from an old packing case, filled a column with it. And then they realized you could simplify it even further. You could do the whole thing on filter paper. I'm sure everybody's familiar with the principle of chromatography. If you're bored trying to entertain your kids this summer holiday, get some colored felt tip pens, put some spots on some filter paper and pull them in water and watch the colors move up. That was basically chromatography. What Martin and Singh realized was it was so much more efficient if you did it with two solvents. And by doing that, they were able to separate out the different amino acids in wool. But it's important to say they had done more than just develop a new lab technique. They'd come up with a new concept. And the concept was the idea that not only their method could tell them what the different amino acids in wool proteins were, but also the linear sequence in which they were ordered. And they came up with this idea of sequence, which, you know, it would come to be at the heart of molecular biology. They both went on to gather numerous accolades but the most prestigious accolade they got was the 1952 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for that method. And one of the people who wrote to congratulate them was Shargaff. Because when Martin gave a lecture at Columbia on paper chromatography, Ernst Vischer was sitting in the audience. He had an epiphany moment. He realized this was exactly what they needed. He got up, he tore a strip of Martin's chromatogram off, ran back to the lab with it and showed it to Shargaff. And Shargaff realized that this process that they had adapted for the analysis of chemical constituents of proteins could be applied to nucleic acids. In fact, Martin himself had kind of anticipated, he'd said in one of his early papers, you know, this method is by no means limited to the separation of amino acids. And Singh said in his Nobel lecture, you know, we think that this has considerable application in the study of nucleic acids. Well, Shargaff proved them right because he took their method and with it, he helped unlock how DNA carries hereditary information. And just to finish, I'm going to point out the great irony of Erwin Shargaff. Here is a guy who, in his later days, despises what science has become. He said, our present natural sciences have got nothing to do with nature. He felt science had just become degraded to, to serve the consumer society. There's a wonderful bit where, to illustrate his point, he imagines Aristotle visiting a modern research day lab and pestering the scientists at the bench, asking them, what is the purpose of your research? To which they reply, to develop cheaper chicken. And for Shargaff, that was almost like a sin. You know, that was a degradation, a, a sort of desecration of science. Uh, he said, when I look at what's now called a science, I wonder if I ever was one. And he, he described the age of our time. He said, science has become utility drunk. So he hated this utilitarianism in science. And here's the irony, though. It was actually incredibly utilitarian, economically driven science, industrial science, geared towards developing a better understanding of the chemical composition of wool fibers for the textile industry that delivered Shargaff the method that he needed to address these big blue sky fundamental questions. So uh, I think that's a wonderful irony to Shargaff. And um, with that, I will wrap it up. Thank you, Kirsten. I just wanted to mention one thing because it's clear that Shargaff already has 
genetic, although as Panina points out, he seems to hate genetic ideas in mind, but it's worth pointing out that at this time for him to not mention genetics is not really problematic, especially in the context of DNA, because DNA has been shown to affect what may or may not be genetic uh, changes in bacteria. Bacteria are not still considered genetic organisms completely at this stage. It's only later. So, you know, there's a little bit of, so he's foreshadowing, which is great. The fact that he doesn't take it up later on could well be attributed to this hatred that Panina is talking about. But I have one final question for which I'd like if possible, short answers before we wind up. And this is just something that struck me when I was reading these papers, is that Shargaf is possibly one person, in contrast to some of the earlier papers where we mentioned clusters of papers, where he goes from making a very general observation about nucleic acid to producing very specific data. So whereas if you look at some of our earlier episodes, especially the one that stands out is that of Sutton, who makes very specific observations about chromosomes and their possible role, you know, chromosomes in grasshoppers, and then moves on to a very general paper on the role of chromosomes in heredity more broadly. Targaff talks very broadly in his Cold Spring Harbor talk, laying sort of a map for his later work, which is very chemical with Fisher. So any thoughts on why that might be? I can be very brief on that. My more or less educated guess is that he could not do anything more at that time because he did not yet have results and he just had decided to switch over to nucleic acids. And the reason behind this was the Avery finding and the Avery finding was connected to obviously genetically in one way or the other, determined changes in bacteria. So he, he had to start from this kind of general picture that he had in mind and then go on and in the next step to kind of develop a, an appropriate arsenal of methods in order to tackle this problem. And so I, I think there is nothing to wonder about this because he, three years later he is coming back to these general questions. So my quick connected question is typically you need to have made a name for yourself before you're invited to something like Cold Spring Harbor to give a presentation on a topic like that. What gave him the in to give this kind of general talk by 1947 already when it had been as recently as 1944 that Avery had just produced his data? So does any of you have any thoughts on that? Well, the only paper he has at the time, it's a paper in April. But he had a standing on the basis of his work on coagulation and on chemistry of tropical pathogens. So he published, you said, 75 papers before. So he had a reputation as a careful, conscientious, accurate, well-trained chemist. And he was attending a large number of conferences. He was at the New York Academy of Sciences every other day. He lived not far from that. And also Demerek, who was the organizer of this conference, 
in 47 as director of the Cold Spring Harbor Lab was someone that has both uh, European and American perspective and could appreciate Chargaff would include some references to Greek mythology or Roman poetry or German romantic literature in every lecture. So Europeans would see that this is a refined Central European intellectual, not just someone who who is very good at technical matters. This is what I find a bit unusual, that the technicality, like Hans Jorgsen and also Kersen said, these are very dirty and complicated works to do. And even though he had a lot of students, it is still a lot of his uses the word dirty work to accomplish these results. He had a reputation to be invited, even though if you look at the participants, except for a Danish name that I have not heard, everybody is well known for work on chromosomes, on nucleoproteins, or nucleic acids, on viruses, on all these combinations where biology and chemistry of reproduction come together. Okay, yeah, so there's one issue with Shargaff about how he's been remembered. You know, the science writer Horace Freeland Judson said that his discovery is basically what made molecular biology possible. And yet Shargaff has been remembered with the parsimonious honor of a 10 cent tip. Now, if you flick through any biology textbook today, the chances are that in the section on DNA, you will see reference to something called Shargaff's rules. So this is talking about the way that a on one DNA chain always pairs up with T on the opposite chain, G on one chain with C on the opposite chain. But calling them Shargaff's rules is very much a, a retrospective construction. He himself never talked of having discovered rules. And I alluded to this actually in my introduction to the paper because, sure, he measured the ratios of A to T, G to C, noted that they were not far from one and described it as noteworthy. That's about as far as he went. Now, the chemist Jerry Donahue, who, who gave James Watson a really important clue into how these bases might pair up, later wrote in the 70s, I think, he pointed out that it wasn't Shargaff's rules that made Watson and Crick's model, their double helical model. It was the other way around. It was Watson and Crick's double helical model that made Shargaff's rules. In other words, it's only when Watson and Crick have built their model and you see that the A on one chain pairs up with the T on the other, G with C, that you look back and all of a sudden, yeah, the light bulb moment, those ratios that Shargaff discovered made sense. This Donahue's views is just a way to draw attention to his own contribution because Shargaff's material was constantly discussed by the people who participated in building the double helix model and by people, I don't mean the two whose name is subsequently associated. Oh, yeah, I remember, I remember Crick describing his reaction. A whole team of thieves and criminals. They never referred properly to Chargaff. The references at the end of the double helix paper are positively misleading about the input of this material into the evolution of the model. And this is something that maybe you should have talked about more because Chargaff is not known because he has been misrepresented the same way that Franklin has been misrepresented, the same way that almost anybody else has been misrepresented by the double helix model to make room for people 
who got almost everything and added a cherry at the top. It's interesting that Crick, Crick recognised it straight away. I mean, Crick said when he learned of the ratio shark after he discovered, he said the effect on him was electric. And there's that um, letter that he wrote to his 10-year-old son, Michael, explaining just why, why these figures were so important. And I'd like to say, actually, Shargaf is not, unlike many of these other names, Hotchkiss is, was unknown to me until I went to Rockefeller to work, and as it turned out, on the DNA, Avery contributions to DNA. But Shargaf's name was almost always known, in part because I came from microbiology, where we always learned about something called Shargaf's ratios, the ratio that's called GC ratios, which was the ratio of the A plus T bases to the G plus C, and that was an important indicator for how closely related microbes were. So the closer their GC ratios, the closer they were related. So it was an important aspect of microbial taxonomy. But Hans-Jörg, you wanted to say something about a parallel. Oh, yeah, that's just a note in passing. I just wanted to say that there's this kind of retrospective labeling is also true for the one enzyme, one gene, one enzyme hypothesis, a term that uh, Beadle never used, and that was invented at the beginning of the 1950s, way after he had presented the first results of his work. Yes, the important part that you mentioned on Chargaff is that instead of citing the full import of all this dirty work and hard work and accurate work, as proper support, they went and cite a young Canadian that duplicated the work just to minimize from what Chargaff did. Wyatt and Cohen also did something similar five years later. This was they cite instead of giving the full weight of what Chargaff's work meant for them, not only in terms of justification of the discovery, because this is retrospectively evidence for the pairing, but it entered into the way that the model was conceived. So nothing that entered is a way that uh, is a logic of discovery, not of justification. Everything was erased. It came out of the blue. But this is not what happened. There's quite a sad line in Shargaff's memoirs because he's, he's sort of painfully aware of what's happened there because he went to Cambridge in, what, 1952, was it, and he met Watson, Crick, and Torxon? And he says in his memoirs, I believe that the double-stranded model of DNA came about as a consequence of our conversation. And then just shortly afterwards, you know, he's fully aware of the magnitude because he says, I seem to have missed a shiver of recognition of a historical moment, a change in the rhythm of the heartbeats of biology. I mean... The guy was a lot of things. I think he was a poet as well. Actually, Chagav was a poet in his later years. Among the 20, some 20 books that he published in German from 1980 to his death, there is a volume with poems. Thank you very much, everybody, for such a informative and stimulating conversation. I'm sure you've given our listeners a lot to think about. This has been a podcast of the Consortium for the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine. I am Nirja Sankaran, moderator of the series, and hope you tune in again next month when we have more to tell you about the hidden figures in the history of DNA.